What is the worst storm you have ever been caught in? Like, or natural disaster? Um, so I've got a love-hate relationship with Calgary. Because I love to hate Calgary. Uh, and I've got a number of reasons for hating Calgary. But when I went to, like, my actual reason for hating Calgary is back in 2009, I was working for an insurance company and I had to go do a number of conferences over the span of about eight months. And the first time that I was there, um, there was such strong winds that there was a tornado warning in there. And I was in one of the taller um, uh, hotels at the very top. And I could see like funnels trying to start. And I went, oh shit, that's really scary. Uh, the second time that I went, uh, there was a blizzard that hit negative 37 degrees. And I stepped outside in a spring jacket. And my beard and mustache were literal icicles for about five or six minutes after I got back into the hotel. Um, <laughs> so that was horrible. And then the last time that I was there, it flooded. And I was the second last person evacuated from downtown Calgary when the Bow River flooded. Amazing. Oh. So Have if I ever, ever go back, the worst natural disaster I will ever find is probably Godzilla, because we just keep fucking scaling, right? So, yeah. Have you ever considered that maybe Calgary doesn't want you back? Yeah, Calgary is willing saying get the fuck out. Right? Like, I, you know, I'm one time is a coincidence. That. Twice, meh, three times, that's a method. That's Calgary's witch saying get out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be a witchy episode, I can tell already. <laughs> it's the only way I operate, I got to tell you. <laughs> what was the worst storm you guys were in? I, I've been in a tornado in Florida once, but not, like, not physically in the tornado, but like we had to like evacuate because there was a tornado. Uh, and then I've been in a 7.4 earthquake in Mexico. Oh, shit. That must have been terrifying. Like, we've been was... through lots of earthquakes here in BC, but nothing really topping like a, like a, four. no. And it was so weird because, like, I was, I was, I think I was 10 years old at the time. And, like, I was sitting in the pool and, like, all the water just started to move, like, because I couldn't feel it because I was in the water, but all the water was, like, moving from left to right and, like, sloshing out of, like, the water, like, out of the pool sides. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And then if you looked up, all the hotels were, like, moving wild it was really wild so it's like it's like a weird core memory that i have but i am not a fan of the wind if it even if it's like slightly windy in life i will be inside i I find wind to be an omen so i do not leave the house when it is windy okay i can see that i remember like being a child and having uh like a tree next to my window and when it would get really windy it would like kind of tap on the side of the window like it was like fingers moving across it did you ever try to figure out the morse code of it i bet it was trying to tell you shit you know what I wasn't a very smart child. Otherwise, I would have. That's your tree witch trying to tell you something. Mm, fucking tree witch. <laughs> Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode, uh, where we continue our conversation on Dungeon Master tips in Dungeons & Dragons in 5th edition. I'm Kyle, and with me today are Megan and Adam, and this episode is called Natural Hazards, Feeling the Wrath of the Unbeaten Path. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters is going to focus on all the environmental dangers out there that don't rely on intelligent design. So when we sat down almost like 20 episodes ago, to cover traps, this was originally set up to be a part of that conversation. Uh, Kyle, during your prep, you saw that there was just a whole lot more than meets the eye with this topic. So you decided to split this conversation into two, one about designed environmental traps, um, like which are the traps that, that we talked about, and one about naturally occurring hazards. And it got me thinking good and hard about the nature of exploration and the problem with it in D&D. Ultimately, exploration should be about strategy, stamina, 
resource management and discovery. That also applies to a proper love life. But in a system that only rewards experience to monster death, uh, has a thoroughly useless and backward economy, and relies on a good uh, sleep in order to solve most issues, and beyond that treats encumbrance like an afterthought, like I gotta ask, are you even interested in really wading through the exploration pillar? And do you think it's worth investing in um, while using this set of rules, like the fifth edition rules? Uh, should we roll on this? Yeah, let's roll on it. I got a natural 20. I'm starting oh, off well. I got a nine. I got a four. Alrighty, so um, I love the exploration pillar, and honestly, there are rules for it, and there are a bunch of ideas in the Dungeon Master's Guide about it, a lot of rules that everybody just kind of ignores, and then there's a bunch of stuff in the uh, Tasha's book, there's a bunch of ideas for like bigger, better, more interesting kind of um, of natural hazards and weather patterns and shit like that, so uh, it does exist, and when you go to Ghosts of Saltmarsh or Icewind Dale or even um tomb of annihilation right there are exploration rules and all of them additional things to do so it's there it's just not a fully comprehensive list sometimes they contradict each other and they don't mesh together well nicely i think it can be done but you almost got to come up with your own basic rule set you got to read everything that exists out there which means having a lot of different books or a very specific you know D beyond account um it's worth <laughs> Hyper it. specific and, set of books <laughs> yeah right um but uh it's worth it. It can pay off, but you got to do the heavy lifting yourself as a DM just because there's no reward for it outside of narrative, really, and whatever a dungeon master comes up with. Yeah, yeah I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's a combination of, I like the idea of using the nature aspect in D&D because I feel like it's an additive that you can use for filler episodes. But I find as a DM, I use most of these aspects again for filler so like if they're traveling or something's happening i'll throw in a random encounter that has to do with weather or hazards or things like this that are naturally occurring in the world because we forget that those things happen like for instance adam in your campaign that we're currently playing in right now weather is predictable every day has the same weather pattern over and over again on repeat so like the whole world knows what to do on what day because the weather is going to be what it is um so we can predict if we are going on a hike that it's going to be raining xyz so we can plan for that right but i like the opportunity that it, there is some unknown that can happen like a thunderstorm can come out of nowhere but to your point i feel like with the rules and how they're laid out it would be a little bit of research to figure out how it operates, how it's going to work, and what it's, how it's going to work for your party and how you've operated so far in the campaign. So especially if weather hasn't really come up or hazards haven't really come up in the past and you're just throwing them out there, like it's almost like you would have to describe to them what the rules are and how to operate them so that they can be successful in them. So it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. I think it's worth it because I think it's a little additive, but it will take a little bit of extra work. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I don't think there is a one size it's all answer, right? I think it's going to entirely depend on what your party is like, what they take enjoyment out of. Um, you know, some of them are just not going to care about the weather, right? And they're not going to think deeply enough about it because they're more concerned about the next social encounter or the next combat or something like that. Uh, personally, I love it. I love environmental hazards because I think it sets a tone for a scene. And that's big for me right like um man i can't remember the word for it but there's a ambiance drawing a but yeah yeah ambiance kind of <laughs> but it's where um you know like uh lightning strikes right when you meet the bad guy or when two lovers are separating it's raining right it's it or the first day whole... you fall in love it randomly starts to snow thanks anime 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're the main character, you have brighter hair than everybody else. But I, yeah, I, like I said, I think you kind of have to go with the flow, right? Uh, it's going to depend on your party because that's really, that's kind of what you're doing everything for. So if they get a kick out of it, if they want to engage with it, then yeah, it's definitely worth doing. Yeah. We have a group that loves random encounters and like, we're pretty creative. Like, and by we, I mean, Adam and those who we played with are pretty creative when it comes to random encounters. And it, I, I think that these are like using hazards and weather patterns and random natural disasters are things that will kind of spice up those random encounters. Even if there is a fight going on, throw in a thunderstorm at the same time, right? Give mm. it some, give it some flavor. I have, yeah, it gives it an extra level of depth. Yeah, I've been out of my way to design. My random encounters are more than just monster attack, right? It's you find clues to something, you might find a corpse, or uh, there's a portal that's open and you don't know what came out of it. Or like, there's lots of different options. Sometimes it's NPCs. Sometimes the random encounter is a person you're traveling with um, ends up revealing a piece of information to you and they trust you or whatever it is. So there's lots of different opportunities there. But most of them are based on the environment that you're in. So, for example, um, the random encounters that you guys were running into was a desert full of open portals. And so there were no real jungle themes. Or At one point, you guys came across a whale that had come through a portal and was just dead on the ground, right? Like, just a whale corpse. You know what the fuck to do with this. Had that been, you know, in a lake or a, an ocean, that would have been a very different encounter. All of my random encounters, and I've got tables of them, they're all based on what environment you're in. And I've got way more than just the ones that are listed in the player's handbook under druids and stuff. I've got like marshes, and marshes are different than bogs, which are different than wetlands, which are different than... Like I really extrapolated... Uh, I've got Arctic and Tundra and whiteout conditions. And so I've really gone out of, out of the way to make it important. And we just recently did one where there was... Um, they had to go rescue a lost child uh, in the woods during a blizzard. That was two sessions ago, and that was probably going to stick with Casey for a while. Um, there was one where they had to fight a bunch of trolls, and of course, trolls are all about fire damage, right? Like, you want fire to fight trolls. So they the trolls had holed up in an area surrounded by geysers. So there was fighting while geysers are popping off as well, right? So it's not just necessarily weather, but like the environment freaking matters, um, and it it should. However, that being said, I know Dave has the exact opposite opinion. I know that when he DMs, he likes to get to the next set piece. Cut out the random encounters. Cut out the description of what the weather's like today. Like, oh, the clouds are lazily rolling through the sky. Does not impact my story, so moving on, right? But I have six hours a week to do this. He has two. Yeah, so, I was going to say it also determines what kind of campaign you're playing. Like, exactly. are you playing in a day where you have six hours together? So those fillers actually give people a breath. Whereas yeah. like in a campaign where you only get two or three hours together, you want to hit those story points to keep people engaged, right? And it also, mm. it also gives me an excuse to, to push at the characters or the players to choose non-combat spells. And it also counts towards the number of encounters per day, right? Like they say six to eight encounters should use up your resources and make it a full, interesting, adventuring day. If only two of those are combat, where am I getting the other encounters? From the environment. Yeah, I think the, the environment too adds... Um, it's using up a different kind of resource, right? Like some of them, like extreme cold will add levels of exhaustion that you're not getting from a combat, right? Yeah. Unless you're fighting a very specific kind of monster thing. But it's, okay, am I leading into somebody that's gonna, or am I leading, leading into a bad guy that's going to force a lot of saving throws, right? Where 
making players have a level of exhaustion really adds an extra level of urgency to the battle. Yeah, the other thing too to keep in mind as well is that you can eat up spell slots and what happens when you when you run out of rope and you're you're dungeon delving. Now you got to make climb checks maybe with disadvantage, right? And so that's going to eat away at the hit points as well. So you're right, like it eats up not just different resources, but you can also still attack their hit points and their spell slots and the things that they are used to coveting in in combat. So that way when they start the combat, they go, "Oh shit, I have two first level spells." And I'm at 90% of my life. This is not this is not ideal by any means. Yeah. Right. And that adds, see, I don't have to design my battles any differently. I have to design the road to the battle. And that makes it more dangerous. Mm. It also stops it from being predictable, right? Because you're coming at them from so many angles that they can't, I don't know, really get their bearings on, okay, what's coming, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we get any deeper into this, though, we are going to cut to an ad break. We previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on Dungeon Master Tips in 5th edition. For all of those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. And if you'd like to support us, you can donate through the website, check out our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you'd like to pay for some ad space on It's Mimic, or just send a shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. This week on the It's a Mimic podcast, we also have two more episodes. One is a return to the Legend of the Five Rings, where Roman and Megan break down some of the great clans. And the other is a return to the Campaign Builder, where our party, who was spurned by Swamp Elves, runs into someone much, much stranger before they get out of the bog. Anyway, let's get back to this episode. You might be asking yourself, what is a hazard? Well, in dungeons, in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, most of the things are trying to kill you, and Mother Nature is no exception in this case. Now, this feels, take... sorry, Kyle, this feels like a work-safe video at this point. You may be asking yourself, "What is a hazard?" And in <laughs> our world, things are out there to harm you. <laughs> I've seen this video into like training for jobs. It does feel like a training video for <laughs> how sorry. to avoid hazards. Like, you're doing great, but that was just really funny. It's great. And then just like flipping clips of a like those infomercial ones where the guy's like bending down to pick something up and then uh, oh my spine. <laughs> Why do they always wear khakis in every one of those videos? Why is everyone wearing khakis? Because we all work at Best Buy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so hazards can take a variety of forms from your everyday hazards that you might find in the real world, uh, like molds or terrifying insects, wilderness hazards like quicksand or thin ice. Weather-related ones like cold or extreme cold, heavy rain, or oppressive heat, or environmental hazards like high altitude. Although this is actually the only example that they give you for environmental hazards. Although I think there could be plenty of other ones where this fits, like the crushing depths of the deep of the ocean, or like being stuck in another plane like limbo, where everything is trying to like fuck you over. Uh, and then there's also the bizarre. Uh, like uh, Eldritch Storms, where basically magic has run so wild that it becomes its own force of nature. Uh, one of the key differences between traps and hazards really lies in the description of them, right? Like most hazards are not going to be hidden. Not all things are going to be obvious at first, right? Like you're not going to be able to see that a room has no air in it. But you can tell that a mountain is going to be treacherous by its deep snow-clad sides and dark foreboding clouds that surround 
its summit in a raging tumult, right? The hardest part for hazards is probably the balancing act between giving your players enough info where they're going to be wary, right? So that they learn to prepare for stuff like the extreme cold, but not so much that it feels like you're actually holding their hand through the whole thing. Um, but hazards are great for a number of reasons. They add a sense of danger where a traditional trap wouldn't necessarily make sense. And they can add a sense of urgency during exploration if you are looking to expand beyond combat and also just add a little more depth to the world by giving it a more well-rounded feel, which is kind of what we went over earlier. Uh, one of the good things to note uh, for including hazards is probably the DC. So the DMG and Xanathar's Guide to Everything have excellent tables in them for traps and hazards that will kind of help you determine the best choice for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, do you want your scenario to just be kind of mild in order to set your players on guard for something larger that's on the way? Or are you looking to dole out a serious punishment for the unwary player at your table? Uh, and you want to show them that this isn't just going to be a walk in the park kind of thing. Uh, generally for DCs, anything 10 and under is going to be easy and is recommended for players that are or a party that is level one to four. Past those levels, you're looking at almost a guaranteed success uh, for a DC of 10 or under. Uh, for 10 to 15, it's considered moderate, while 15 to 20 is considered hard. These are probably recommended for your players that are level five to 10 parties, right? Uh, they give a chance to failure, but they likely aren't gonna hurt a party as a whole. Uh, when you get into over 20, so 20 to 25 is considered very hard, while 25 to 30 is considered almost impossible in terms of a DC. These you are gonna save for either high level parties or for scenarios where you are trying to discourage player from a plan of action, but you don't want to outright say no to it, right? Uh, at this point, it's pretty much guaranteed that unless the player is optimized for this particular scenario uh, or the save they have to make, they likely aren't gonna succeed at it. Um, so before we jump into the actual hazards, uh, I think it is very important uh, to understand the rules that also come with each of them. Because uh, they can be kind of cumbersome at sometimes, right? And a lot of people, especially players, don't necessarily read up on them. So it is good to be fully aware of stuff like fall damage, suffocating rules, exhaustion, and poison. You really want to like keep them handy uh, when your party is going to encounter them. And just just to be clear, we've done episodes on all of those. Um, the uh, fall damage we've done fairly recently, suffocating rules. Uh, I think Dan and I covered in depth in the underwater combat episode around episode 120-ish. Uh, exhaustion was has a whole episode devoted to it, and so does Poison as well. So you can go back and find them easily on our YouTube or check the episode guide on the website to find out uh, which uh, what kind of the episode range you should be scrolling to for them. Or just listen to the entire catalog. That's probably your best option. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Just start at episode one and then uh, and count every every time that Dan coughs, Megan burps, or Terry says that we should just drop somebody to their death. That's <laughs> that's what we have to offer here at It's a Mimic. I'm glad that we have our MOs at this point, to be honest with you. I also feel like we should have a, every time someone makes an innuendo, you should take a shot kind of drinking game for this, but that's... We would kill, might kill people. Yeah. 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 You'd also have to do every episode online because, you know, some of us have to drive. <laughs> <laughs> There's a world where I would love to do a live like podcast recording, like of us on a paddle. Be careful. Be careful with that. People ask about once every six months, somebody says, 
when are you guys going to do something live on like Twitch? And every time I'm like, oh, it's not in the budget right now for us to buy cameras. And I don't know. Because once once we open those floodgates, you know, holy It'd shit. It would be painful. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And, uh, yeah, but it could be very fun. It could be very fun. But I mean, I want you to just stop and think about the rest of the people on the podcast. We are the three prettiest ones. You're not wrong. I mean, I, I, of course, Casey and Mia oh. are great. But like, come on now. Come on. I'm more thinking from the original crew. Like, yes, we are. <laughs> there, there, there are some, there are some comely looking people. There's some faces for radio. Yeah. I'm sorry. Faces for podcast. I mean, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 2023. There's no such thing as radio anymore. That's fair. Not unless it's serious. Oh man. Uh, so I have a couple questions for you guys. Uh, do you have any advice for dungeon masters about natural hazards? Uh, do you want to roll for this? Yeah, let's roll. Nine. Well, 17. Uh, so for me, I would say keep the rules close, right? Like if you're preparing something, because uh, I mean, hazards come in so many different forms. If you're going to have something that deals exhaustion, make sure you have the exhaustion rules handy. So you can explain it to everybody. Same with poison, all that good stuff, right? I also think, in my opinion, hazards are mostly meant for flavor and using up the resources, not outright trying to kill a party member. Right? Yeah. You're just trying to add a little judge into a, an encounter, right? Add something outside of combat just to give a little something extra. The only time I'm ever going to use a, sorry, to, like to your point, the only time I'm ever going to use a like natural hazard of some sort, trying to kill players to make it so thoroughly difficult is at the end of the campaign, they've defeated the big boss. They've done what they needed to do. And now the mountain is collapsing down around them. How many yeah. will get out alive, right? And big epic moment like that, or like that final the volcano level of is Halo. exploding, right? Like with the with a erupting volcano and everything's exploding around you. Like, don't be dumb. Yeah, right? <laughs> don't be an asshole. <laughs> now, I also roll good. Yeah. roll well. No, I I also feel like the thing we always try to remind like DMs out in the world is that these adventurers, no matter what level they're at, are experienced at what they're doing they know a little bit about how to travel and like they're from different parts of the world. So if they're going to go into a mountain or go like, you know, out into the sea and do like a, a pirate theme, like they probably know how to handle being in a storm. They probably know how to handle being in cold weather. Like they probably know these things. So don't be scared to share the rules so they can actually navigate appropriately. I feel like a lot of the times when once I once had a DM who threw us into an environmental situation didn't tell us the rules of what was happening. But then, of course, we started taking levels of exhaustion. Things were happening. And we're like, okay, well, what's legitimately happening to our bodies and how can we learn how to navigate this? And one of our players actually put their hand up and said, I'm from this land. Why would I not know how to deal with this? Right? So I think that that's a key thing to keep in mind is that adventurers are knowledgeable and they're not going to go out there all willy-nilly thinking that they're going to survive with nothing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, honestly, it's... That's gotcha DMing, and I'm not a fan of it, right? So um, this game is about presenting challenges for your players to overcome, not challenges to make them feel shitty about themselves or to make them feel like they made poor decisions. Sometimes they won't overcome the challenge. That's just how probability works. And I guess that's my big tip to DMs is probability is your friend at low levels because you're rolling a dice, right? And you're trying to figure out how much of the random world. You don't have to, to actually do that, right? 
Like, you can just roll dice to hit, but you don't have to roll damage. You can just take average damage, especially with monsters and stuff. You have average hit points and average damage, and you can really, like, minimize the amount of rolling that you're doing. But we like the random. That's a part of D&D. So when it comes to these high levels, you get a rogue with expertise, and then, like, for sleight of hand, they are going to have, like, a plus 19 in Tier 4. They're not going to fail at this. I had Dan, who was an, uh, he was a gnome investigator, at level 20. He was a radar dish. Like, there was nothing that existed that he didn't know was there. But all that meant was he has a higher probability of getting it right. Even if the DC is 15, he can't fail in this. You can't roll a 1 and fail on a skill check, right? That, like, crit mm-hmm. failures are for only combat. So if I'm looking at it like it's a probability thing... How does probability work in my favor? Well, you unlocked the thing. The side of hand worked. You did it. You opened it up and it gets to the next thing. What is the next check? And it's a different kind. So you have to keep rolling dice. Nobody's dice are hot forever. If they've got a plus eight and they're probably going to consistently make the stealth check, make them roll it seven times. Chances are good they'll fail. You don't have to change the DC, right? Don't so, you think that is kind of gotcha DMing though? Right? Like where they have a higher... Um... No, no, no. I'm talking about just zooming in, right? Like yeah. I'm not out there to to target them, but I'm zooming in on the issue. If I want them to be... If they're trying to sneak into a palace and the palace mm-hmm. is supposed to be really, really, really well guarded and I've really built this up for three sessions and they've come up with a, with a plan and they've got maps and they've got the resources going in and they have to roll stealth and the rogue is like, yeah, I'm just going to be amazing at this. He will be. And he will also probably scout ahead in front of everybody else and be a little cocksure about it and let them like, let them do this and let them succeed. Cause when they roll, they'll do okay. But eventually that one comes around and that plus eight is a nine, not a 19. Right. Yeah. And so if you want it to be dangerous and remember that that failure doesn't mean he's caught that failure means he made noise and the guards are now coming over to investigate right i'm okay. not there to punish the player i'm just making the danger more real because just cuz they're good at the skills and and the dcs are middling like they're not super low um mm. it, it, that doesn't mean that we don't have to roll for it anymore i used to just turn to my players and say hey, you've got a plus 21 to this. You can just do it. I don't care, yeah. right? Like it, you get a minimum 22 anyway. But eventually- That's kind of what, hmm? what it feels like they were trying to go for with these passive skill checks as well, right? Yeah, and you know what? If you're going to build a character that does that, then you built a character specifically for that because you wanted to be good at it. And you sacrificed spell casting and you sacrificed being able to push, pull, or drag big things and you sacrificed- you know, having multiple attacks, right? You went skills for a reason. Like, mm. Megan, we were doing the L5R campaign. My character learned how to talk. I couldn't fight to save my life. And so it was just talk, talk, talk. And so you kept giving me opportunities to talk. That was the character I built. And when mm. combat would break out, I sat there with my finger up my nose, just wondering, right? You like, guarded sometimes. You try, try as you may. And I also gave you a good sword at the end to give yes, you a little taste like, of battle. <laughs> but, but I mean, I was not, I was not built to be a fighter. No. Right? I, I was built to do the skills and you let me, right? So yeah. what a surprise. Adam built a character entirely just to talk. Hey man, L5R is built for talking. I feel like L5R was built for Adams and uh, I hope that we get to play more. <laughs> I, I honestly think that it might be, of all of them, that and Call of Cthulhu might be the two um, systems that are really geared towards me. Not Vampire the Masquerade, not Blades in the Dark, not even D&D, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the social conversation and putting together puzzle pieces. That's uh, 
Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Uh, so actually, that that whole answer is an excellent excellent seg into the next question, which is, do you treat natural hazards differently uh, when you have a ranger or a druid in your party? I guess it's me again. Uh, yeah, so for me, I, the only thing it might change is I might add more of them just because I want that party member to feel integral to the weave of the party, right? Like it gives them, it just lets them shine, right? So I'm not going to make it harder. I'm not going to punish them, right? Like I want to reward a player for their choices. And so, yeah, the only thing I would do is add more hazards so that they can feel useful yeah. and to use more of their like abilities. Yeah, I almost feel like I would use hazards and things like this a lot more if I knew I had a druid or one of those folks in a party that knew how to handle them and deal with them because it's their time to really claim their stake in the party um, and like really emphasize party dynamics that this person is very good at this. It's the same thing Adam was speaking to about how like, yeah, your rogue is going to sneak ahead and go forward. Doesn't mean they're going to always be very good at it, but you've now staked your claim in the group that when party dynamics occur and you're out in the wild, this is your go-to person, right? Yeah. We yeah. play this game because we want to feel like heroes, right? And so let them feel like heroes. Yeah. I also think about why do we have a ranger and why do we have a druid in the party? And the answer for a ranger is twofold. You want to be super all about nature, but still be able to fight. Um, or you want an animal companion. And for Druid, you want to be all about nature and you want to be a spellcaster, right? Like, that's what they're for. Let them be all about nature. Give them nature shit to do. When it comes to a survival check, I, like, if the fighter, the paladin, the the rogue and the wizard are doing a survival check to make a campfire in the cold, right? Then I'm going to have them roll together. It might be a group challenge where I'm like, hey guys, I need you to combined to get a 30 everybody roll but when i've got a, a, a ranger in the group all right ranger what are you doing they might just have a spell to do it right but like i will turn to them and make them the focus of it you want to know one of the things that i do when i've got a ranger in the party i make rations really limited and i force the ranger or the druid to either hunt or gather when they're out in the wilderness it gives them that extra thing to do everybody else sits down you guys are going to take a uh, watch who's going to take first second or third watch but the ranger, while everyone's doing that, is building the camp, rolling a survival check, and going out hunting, where they'll probably do a nature check, and uh, and I'm going to get them to just roll against a generic DC, roll an attack against a generic DC, and then however high they roll will be kind of the size of the prey they, they catch, right? So gives them the flavor that they need to feed, that they want to have, right? So yeah, I absolutely treat nature more importantly and i will give them hazards like the ranger doesn't come back now yeah. what do the rest of them do right and it could just be something as simple as the ranger found the pit trap that the cobalt set and is sitting in the bottom of a hole going guys whoa right or it could be yeah. a landslide right they went out on their own into nature right and they'll be a little bit more cautious next time they learn a thing they can add plus one to nature checks on the side of mountains in the future like that kind of shit right like yeah give, give the them whole... give them what they want to play okay uh so the next question is what was the most interesting hazard you've run into in a DD game uh so for me it's not so much one and i'm it's actually one i am currently running that i'm like halfway through uh and it's not just one hazard, but it's a whole bunch of them fit into one larger encounter kind of thing. So it's basically the party is trying to scale up a mountain and uh, it's worked out where it's really made the exploration pillar kind of shine. So like it starts off 
with a rock slide that they have to avoid. Uh, then we get into like a heavy snow fog kind of area where the party has to do checks to make sure they don't get separated. Uh, and then they're also attacked by a Yeti while they're in the heavy fog. So it's kind of like that horror thing where everybody is alone and you never know who's going to get snatched up next. Uh, and then you also have it shred their clothes, right? So now they're dealing with extreme colds, but their clothing that they brought up isn't working anymore. So how are they going to do it? Do they have the men's spell? Do they have a tailor's kit, right? Um, body heat, and then, just just body heat and friction, baby. Yeah, <laughs> don't give them ideas, Adam. Uh, and then the next one is the, yeah. So now they're exposed to cold weather, and the last little bit they have to scale up a cliff, right? So this is gonna add to their exhaustion usage, right? It's gonna make the it's gonna make it harder to get up that cliff, and then if they don't do it, then they're also gonna get another level of exhaustion by the time they get to the top. Yeah, I, I played in a campaign once where it was very, we were within the mountains, but we also had to deal with lava, which was an interesting thing to have to navigate and construct as we were dealing with heat, which over time gave us exhaustion just because we were within the vicinity of lava being around. And then at like the pinnacle at one point, like it goes off and then it became like a chase, like it's basically being chased by lava, um, which was a fun thing to do because not only are you using natural hazard rules, but you're also using the chase rule system, uh, which yeah. was a lot of fun to kind of combo together. Um, I was a player at that table and I didn't much care for it, but as a DM, I think it would have had a lot of fun. <laughs> I have used natural hazards a surprising amount considering considering that I don't tend to make them the focus of my my campaign. Um, I really make them background information. Um, for example, like what Megan was talking about before, about you know, based on the day of the calendar, what the weather's going to be like that day. Um, it makes it so that it's just background noise. And every once in a while, I turn to them and I say, hey, you guys got to find shelter. It's a heat wave for the next three days. You know what's coming. Here's two days warning, right? And they put it together. It's usually a roll or two, and then we move on. But it, like they're tracking time now through the um, through the game as well. But I think probably the last campaign had a bunch of stuff that was really subtle in the background. For example, I started off, it was all rivers, as far as the eye could see. And the rivers were wide enough it would take a day to, to um, travel across the, the river from one bank to the next. But it was, um, if you wanted to go against the current, it would be double uh, or half the speed. If you wanted to go with the current, it would be double the speed. So you were looking at the map and counting squares. How long is it going to take to get to the next place? There was uh, one uh, kilometer of fog that clung to the entire landscape. But if you could get above it, you could see the mountain ranges and you could be able to navigate. You know how hard it is to navigate ships when you don't have the ability to see the sky? And the fog is so thick, you can only see about 100 feet in any direction, right? When it's 100 feet in any direction, that means that other creatures and other ships are coming out of the fog to you. You're relying on sound more than sight. Um, and uh, it... You're relying on the currents and the shoreline to figure out where you are in the world. And so that was a big part of it. And then, of course, it's all the, all the crazy fucking water stuff. But at one point, I had them need to get above the fog to be able to fly. You guys all got wyverns, and you all ended up flying on wyverns, and it just happened to be during hurricane season, and we knew it was coming. And the rolls they had to do in the terrible gusty wind to not fall off their wyverns was a was a part of that session and to the point where uh, Megan's on mute, but she just like grinned and nodded. Like these things are memorable because of the natural environment there, and because it adds just that extra little level. It's not just an animal handling check; 
It's an animal handling check and an acrobatics or an athletics check to stay on the wyvern. Yeah. And it was, again, it like really highlighted the characters that were good at that. Right. And like we flourished it like you, you, you stocked the landing or like you are like, I think at one point, even in that instance, one of us rolled so well that they asked, can I help the other people? Yeah. Like, and those things can be navigated, right? They just add so much more, but yeah. So can I ask this campaign where the weather is essentially the same on each day of the week? Each day of of the year. Each day of the year. Yeah. Okay. So, but is there, is there like a story reason behind that or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the story reason is that this was the beta test for the gods making reality. So they created the idea of the sky, but the sky doesn't have a sun or moon or stars. They created the idea of weather so that different gods would have a different strength or purview at different times. Like the the god of fire was like, hey, let's have a really hot part of the year. And everyone was like, okay, fine. But only this portion. And then we're going to let the cold guy get their portion as well. And that's how it all came to be. And it has nothing to do with weather patterns or high and low pressures or anything else. All that shit gets smoothed out in future universes because yeah, we're okay. very much in a multiverse. So that's... That's where it came from. And spoiler alert for Megan, what's going to happen when suddenly that doesn't apply anymore? And what is going? what are all of the people in the world that have become used to this, what are they going to do when they react to it? So the, the weather being consistent is a long game for me to be like, hey, you know what? Shit's about to get real when, yeah. when the weather patterns are suddenly not able to be predicted. Lulling them into a false sense of security. Well, it's the NPCs have been into a false sense of security. I'm going to turn to my players and be like, and suddenly it rained today. And they're going to be like, okay, weird. Yeah. Next. I, I have seen rain. Like, this does not bother me. But like NPC number three is going to be like, rain on a Thursday in September? No. <laughs> right? Like Absolutely not. <laughs> so so um, I guess your players don't have senses of security, do they? Um, no. Every time that they, actually, you know what? I, I was saying earlier today. Um, in the Patreon Discord, I'm like, I have absolutely um, loved the idea of giving them a sense of security, and it's not false, where we've had, like, there are a couple of relationships, there are a few parents running around, there's some siblings, and everybody's, like, legitimately getting to know this town, and it's and it feels good, and I have zero intention of threatening the town. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm trying to be as, as completely blatant about that as possible. I do not want to threaten this city. Um, I mean, unless you guys seriously fuck it up somehow, which Christ, you might, but like, I I want them to enjoy role playing with the people that they chose in their backstories. <laughs> like, I, I, I know that that's a foreign concept for a lot of DMs. Like, oh, you have a you have a wife. Well, now you have a corpse, and now we have deep dark drama. No, man, there's all sorts of drama to be had from the wife just turning to the character and saying. Please don't go adventuring today. Yeah. I just, I want you to be at home today. Yeah. Right. And it makes it (laughs) a little bit more real. And so I want to, I want to play with that. We've got some, some interesting dynamics with NPCs that we've never had before. So I'm really trying not to to give us false sense of security. Megan, you, you know what this campaign is about. Shit is coming down the pipeline and we know it. You guys are actively training to be able to to fight it off. So we're all going to (laughs) die. I know it, you know it, the players know it. We all gonna die. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm I don't wanna I don't wanna do false sense of security anymore. The false sense of security should be the pressure trap. It shouldn't be the you come home and your farmhouse is on fire. Um yeah. I, I've done that for years. It's time to you come home and get a hug and you feel good about yourself. Yeah. That's kind of a fun idea too, right? Like the idea of 
uh, almost a Pleasantville scenario, right? Where it's too happy. Yeah, it's too good. It's not that it's going to be too good. Like it's not like it's Pleasantville because it's legitimately pleasant. It's like first act Pleasantville. It's not masturbating. So now there's colorful roses Pleasantville, right? Like it's it's good times without a catch. And I'm really trying to hit that because we just got out of a campaign that was like, oh god, it was tears every session. It's time to time to reward my players for suffering through that. I I'm here for the suffering though. Like and Megan, I know you are, and your reward is more suffering. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Megan, you did make a sound of disgust when he's like <laughs> mentioned the happy spouse at home. Ugh. <laughs> 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 I'm here to feel pain and pain only. Hey, you know what? It's 2023. Happiness at home is the fucking fantasy. Let's be honest. Everyone just <laughs> yeah. came through COVID. It was a dark fucking time. Let's all pretend to smile again. Oh my God. I re- my sister said to me the other day, or like someone said to me, as long as you're health- happy and healthy. And my sister just looked dead in the eye. Megan, nobody's happy. And I'm like, hmm. And, 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 and nobody, <laughs> nobody's healthy. We all sat around long enough to realize that, hey, you know what? Our immune systems are shot now because we didn't go outside. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all drink till the economy crashes. What's that? What's that? Let's roll some D20s and and pretend to be happy again. Yeah, man. Well, this took Uh, a dark fucking turn, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So on that note, we'll move on to specific traps. Let's do it. marriage, maybe. Hey, Hey, oh. Hey, as as the guy that's engaged right now, I don't need to hear that shit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you rolling dice or what are we doing? For yeah, we're, we're rolling some dice. Okay. All righty. 14. 16. Oh, I got a 12. Blessings. All right. <clears throat> so my first hazard trap is going to be green slime. Nice. Uh, so this can be found in your classic Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, this is exactly as you would think. It is a green ooze that sticks to walls, floors, and probably ceilings. Well, actually it does stick to ceilings. So like, because why not? It is obviously green green in color and is a consumer of organic material and metals on contact. So think kind of like gelatinous cube, but not as cubish. Mechanically, they are written to cover over a five foot square. It has blind sight up to 30 feet and will drop down on anyone who wanders below it. So yes, it sticks to ceilings and yes, it will fall on you if you walk underneath it. It is ruled as written that you can only attempt to dodge the slime with a D10 deck save if you are aware of its presence. If you do not see it and do not know that it is there, you cannot dodge it. Once you are stupid enough to come into contact with it, you are going to take a 1d10 acid damage at the start of each of your turns until you aggressively remove or destroy the slime. If it lands on wood or metal, it it uh, that, that substance takes a 2d10 damage instead. Here's the fun bit, though. If you use a magical weapon or any weapon in general to remove the slime, that weapon is basically then destroyed based on the damage output. Lovely. So yeah. how do you kill it? You kill it with sunlight. Uh, and anything that cures diseases and anything that deals cold fire radiant or sorry, cold fire or radiant damage uh, will kind of destroy the puddle itself. So, so what if you use a weapon that does radiant damage to it? Well, you'll destroy it, but then it'll also get destroyed. Destroy in the process. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. Fair enough. We, okay. So uh, does it have a hide DC? Right. Because you said it um, only if you know it's there. Yeah. Right. Well, it just looks like slime on walls and stuff. Yeah. Like, so here's the thing: is if, I, if I'm going to have green slime, the hazard in my dungeon, I'm going to have all sorts of other slime that I've set up ahead of time before we get here, mm. right? like so a Nickelodeon this, show. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be 
this is going to be a a, a big wet dungeon. It's everything's going to be moist. It's going to be just mm. just soggy all just over the place. Just going to schlep through this dungeon, right? Yeah, yeah. There's no scooching. <laughs> it's just schlepping. So, um, yeah, the uh, you just schlepping with your weapons, and uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully um, they're not going to to recognize that this is green slime and this is a problem, right? So yeah, until it's too late, kind of thing. Yeah, and well, you can also warn them with it, like, like, like you can also warn them that there's puddles on the ground at first, and like, so they know it exists. Mm-hmm. But then suddenly they keep walking through, and if you're not careful and not looking around aggressively enough, suddenly one will fall on top of you. But you've already introduced them the concept of how to take care of it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. I like that. Uh, so yeah, that uh, I guess that um, brings it to me that my natural hazard feels a little bit uh, strange here. It's a uh, demon iker and this is what remains after a demon dies you know ghosts have ectoplasm they just leave puddles of of uh like milky white substance goo? everywhere yeah. Ghost goo? yeah yeah uh demon iker is the black goop that the uh the demons leave behind it has a consistency and stench of bile specifically um so Avernus is this great battleground of the lower plains where demons and devils face off. And it's been a while since we've spoken about the blood war at length, but we mention every couple of dozen episodes or so. Um, it's worth bringing up again now that it's absolutely carnage on the first level of the Nine Hells. And according to Baldur's Gate, Descent into Avernus, enough demons get slain here that there are actually pools and small lakes of this shit everywhere. So this isn't small puddles like green slime. This is a fuck ton. Uh, like you could drown in demon ichor. Unique <laughs> ways to incorporate this gross ichor into diabolical rituals and evil magics, even going so far as to incorporate it into the running of their infernal Mad Max machines. But whatever you do, don't touch it. Because if you do, you got to make a DC 10 con save, unless you're a plant ooze fiend or undead. If you fail that save, you have to roll on the flesh warping table to find out what physical changes you're going to suffer through until you can have remove curse or similar magic cast upon you. So there's a D100 table and I have it in front of me and I'm going to roll dice and tell you guys what your flesh warping is. All right. D100. Uh, Yeah, but it's not 100 options. It's just like there are different levels it's almost broken out this could be a d20 table honestly like yeah still it's it's enough options to give it a lot of flavor yeah um megan you got a 23 i rolled for you and you the target's eyes become beacons filling a 15 foot cone with dim light when they are open guile (laughs) you get a 32 uh the target's ears tear free from its head and scurry away the target is deafened what the fuck and for me i rolled a that's the same as Kyle. So I'm gonna roll out 74. Uh, the target swells, tripling its weight. Yeah. So there you go. There's all sorts of crazy shit on this. Um, it's just fun. This is everything from like tentacles to body parts falling off to things becoming feathered or like you get a flying speed. Like it's just fucking wild, right? But the yeah. idea here is that if you fail to save, you get stuck with this till you get a remove curse put on you. This is this it's is witchcraft, and I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a there's actually a module in Candlekeep where Demon Icor plays um, a big part. They make it uh, part of a paint set <gasps> where nice. like tags paint pictures of people and then it saps them of all their strength. It's pretty that's awesome. really cool. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I, I, uh, I really like this because I would if your wild magic table isn't enough, a lot of people then look at the wild magic barbarian, but all that's like really positive things. 
This stuff is a mix of good and bad and like a bunch of just weird shit in it. I, I would lean mm. on this as well. That's fine. I like it. Uh, so I've got rock grubs. Uh, so rock good grubs. News. Are you okay? <laughs> I do. I keep them in a jar. Uh, <laughs> so these are like finger-sized little bastards that can either come singularly or as part of a swarm. And you can either meet them as a hazard or as an actual monster stat block. Uh, personally, I like to think of these things as even worse versions of maggots, so I'm unlikely to treat them in the singular format. It just doesn't really make sense to me that one would be crawling around, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so wherever the dead and dying can be found, you can also find these disgusting creatures. Uh, they are capable of subsisting on plant matter, but they're mostly flesh eating, whether it's dead or alive. And nothing is going to stand in the way of them devouring it. So if you try to get between them and a corpse, they will attack you. Um, and the moment they come in contact with flesh, they start chewing their way inwards until they get to those sweet, delicious vital organs. Their only weakness is fire and magic against poison. Uh, so when a creature first comes into contact with one, they have to succeed on a DC 10 constitution saving throw or become poisoned and start taking 1d6 poison damage at the end of each of their turn. Uh, now, they can also repeat the saving throw, but it has to be they have to take fire damage first before they can. And on a success, they end the effect. Um, if a poison creature does uh, get down to zero hit points on their turn, uh, they are just dead. There is no death saving throws. They are just gone. That. That's wild. That it's like it's sucks. a creepy visual, to be honest with you. Like the visual yeah. of it is kind of weird and gross. Like well, it is nice that this one does have more of a an immediate save versus like the the Iker, but like or Iker, whatever you guys are saying. Um, but it the, the visual of it is just kind of creepy. Phalanges. Yeah. <laughs> Where you can see it like going beneath your skin, moving upward. Yeah. Right. Well, wasn't it you, Megan, or was it Casey that just had a tadpole trying to burrow into your stomach in the last session? That was me. That was my character. Yes. There's just there's just not enough wriggly things trying to work their way into people's torsos. Yeah. Yeah, I got eaten by a thing, and then it tried to put tadpoles in my body. Great. Mm. You're welcome, Internet, for that. <laughs> <laughs> we love that for us. Yeah. Is that what we love? I, sometimes. Hey, you know what? We don't we don't yuck anyone. We don't get we don't, yeah, we don't yuck anyone, yeah. yeah. Um are we keeping the same initiative for the next set or what are we doing? Yes, we are. Uh but I just want to let everybody know that uh you can find all these rules as well as rules for brown mold, yellow mold, and webs in the DMG, as well as the absolutely terrifying russet mold in Volo's Guide to Magic. We don't like that. Uh, no, pretty gross. Or slime. Yeah, Volo's Volo's russet mold. That's the one where when you die, I think veggie pygmies come bursting out of you afterwards. Ew. Like it's the mold on your like infects your body and you die from a fungal infection. Amazing. So it's kind of uh kind of Last of Us vibes. So yeah, that's, that's in Volos. I guess that's uh, in Monsters of the Multiverse now. Hmm. Probably. I haven't that's looked. Fair. Anyways. Gross. Same initiative or are we rolling again for the next? Okay. What would you say, Kyle? Same now let's just keep it the same. Sure. Deal. Wilderness hazards. I'm going to talk about quicksand. So quicksand, another fun environmental issue, obviously. Uh, these are roughly 10 feet in like 10, 10 foot squares that are also 10 feet deep. So it's a 10 foot cube. When a creature stupidly steps into one of these areas, they sink down 1d4 plus one foot. Uh, so sorry, small creatures, if you are under three feet tall, because on an average, you will then be sunk. <laughs> 
Uh, the only way you can attempt to escape your, uh, for yourself is by succeeding on a strength save of DC 10 plus the distance you have sunk, but only if you have not been fully submerged yet. So you have to have like somewhat some part of your body still exposed. If you are submerged, you cannot breathe and are being suffocated, which we have talked about suffocating rules in the past. I uh, technically can survive a long time while suffocating, but you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like drowning in my opinion with quicksand, but that's just me. Um, yeah. Someone can help out and pull you out, but they must succeed on a DC five plus the number of feet that you have sunk down as well. So if you, if you are the strongest person who has sunk down and your wiser is trying to pull you out, there might be a better way. You know well, what I mean? Hold on, I'm sorry. Do, do, do the math on that for, for example, like that sucks for a halfling, but like, for a Goliath, it's 10 feet deep. They're eight feet tall. Even completely submerged, it's five plus two. It's a DC seven strength check to pull them out. Yeah. That's not so bad. I yeah. feel like it's like a team effort that you're pulling someone out of quicksand. I feel like this one isn't necessarily meant to hurt or kill your party. It's more of like an obstacle or a moment to take pause to like observe your environment. It's not hey, necessarily yeah. going to kill you. Or you as a distraction all... for like an ambush. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, the whole party is concentrated on trying to save this one person and then boom that's when you get attacked the trap yeah this or trap like, was a trap <laughs> like the moment that you go in to rescue this person so you have two people one half submerged in and holding their breath and the other person completely submerged and by the way god help you if you try to cast a spell with verbal components in quicksand because now you're no longer holding your breath you are actively dying right so your lungs are full of sand so the um this is the moment where the grung or the lizard folk come out of the fucking foliage. Half the party, yeah. or at least two members, are distracted by by quicksand. Yeah, now, now you guys are fucked. This this is kind of what I would use instead of the net trap from Return of the Jedi. Yeah, okay, yeah. more of the natural trap as opposed to a, a strategically mm -hmm. set trap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that everything you have for quicksand? Yeah, man. I feel like there should be more quicksand. Just feels like it should be more de deadly. I've been saying yeah. this since but, I was like. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it's one of those things that uh, popular culture made you think it was going to be a way bigger deal as an adult than it really is. However, comma, if you're, again, to your point from the beginning of this episode, when we talked about how your ranger is going to run off into the distance and they're going to get stuck in quicksand and they're going to be by themselves, right? So depending on what kind of, and like your rogues are going to be playing what? Half elves, like, like the smaller type creatures. So they're probably going to sink a lot faster and they will be in a little bit more trouble than if you were that, to encounter as a party, right? And, and that's the moment of like the, the wolf that is their animal companion busts out of the forest panicking and there's no ranger to be found, right? Like now it's a, we have to follow. So there's advantage from, from the wolf helping, but we have to roll survival checks to track the ranger. Fuck. See, interesting, interesting little side bit. When was the last time you saw someone die from quicksand? Was it the mummy movies? They didn't die from it though. Most of them survived. Yeah, but like no named extras died from quicksand, didn't they? I don't think I've is... ever seen anybody die in quicksand. Nope. Did Sandman kill anybody in Spider-Man 3? Like, I'm just trying to think, like, as scary as quicksand was always in my brain, I don't think I've ever seen a character die from quicksand. Nope. Huh. It was just scary. No, it's always yeah. meant to be that, like, oh, no, they're almost dead, and all they've got is, like, one hand above when someone yep. throws them a stick or a rope. Yeah. Like Indiana Jones, Princess Bride, all of them, they all survive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, even um, uh, Star Wars, where they're in the garbage compactor thing. Yeah. That's almost like quicksand. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea. Same same kind of vibe, right? And 
Yeah. Someone is yelling at their fucking speakers right now, going, "No, this one movie it happened." I'm like, "Okay, fine." Hey, man, what, I, what, is it, what is it? Tell us. I encourage you to come at us in the comments. That's yeah. where I yeah, come at us. All right, that brings me to my next thing, which is Razor Vine, fifth edition's answer to razor wire. This is a plant that grows in the wild in chaotic bunches and swirls. It can act like tangles, hedges, or even ivy as it scales buildings and trees. But however it grows, it grows thick becoming difficult to pass through. If it was a little more ambulatory, it would be considered a plant creature, like an assassin vine. But as it stands now, it doesn't really move. It just grows thick. No? Nobody's going to jump on that? Okay, moving yeah. on. The I don't know. It feels like one of those give... things that rich people will cultivate on the outside of their manners, right? Yeah. Like... As extra, like, defense, like home defense covered in razor yeah. water. Well, okay, your, your so witch, when I was... witch's house is covered in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. But, like, okay, so when I was in Southeast Asia, uh, a lot of places had, um, like, concrete walls. And then on the top, they had a bunch of broken glass docking in the top. Yep. So I feel like this would be the answer to that. Like, you've got, you're protecting Why? your manor wall, so you've got this all over the outside. Why? Why would they put broken glass? Or was it a defensive thing? or? A yeah, it's a defensive thing. Bar? So people cut their hands when they're trying to get over top. Oh, shit, that's hardcore. I was gonna say birds, but I mean, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, the DMG does give a couple of stats for uh, razor vine, assuming that you run across the default clumping of ten foot high, ten foot wide, and ten foot deep. Um, it's the same thing with quicksand too. Like you're not running into a ten foot cube of this shit. You're you should have three or four puddles of quicksand all mashed together, right? Like it should it shouldn't just be a ten by ten by ten. Same thing with razor vine. Um, it apparently has an AC of 11 and 25 hit points um, per 10-foot cube. I think it's clear that this is supposed to be a barrier the players will want to hack through. Fortunately for you, as a DM, it's immune, not resistant, to bludgeoning, piercing, and psychic damage. Uh, no word on slashing, though, and honestly, your players will probably just reach for the swords anyway. So, but, you know, there you are. Um, whenever a creature comes into contact with any amount of Razor Vine for the first time on a turn, they have to make a deck save or take 1d10 slashing damage from the dagger-like thorns. You'll notice it says the first time on a turn, not on your turn, which means you can be pushed into it, thrown into it, dropped into it, teleported into it. And I don't know about you, but if a creature is tossed into Razor Vine against their will, I'm going to give them disadvantage on that deck save and really slice them up some. So I'm eager to get into a position where I can have a battle around Razor Vine. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a hazard that is going to take some navigation from mm -hmm. your team, right? But And again, I feel like this is purposely planted. I don't feel like you would necessarily come across this now. Like, I mean, to me anyways, I feel like it's something that you would plant as like a, as a guard or, you know... I think nine times out of ten. I think nine times out of ten, you're right. I think yeah. if there's like a an old road that you know heads over to the next village, but we haven't heard from anybody in that direction since mm -hmm. you no know, last year, so your players go over to there. It's it's overgrown with razor vine. You don't know why, yeah. right? Like it could just have been overgrown and nobody hacked it back. Um, yeah, unkept for a while, right? Well, it's kind of like blackberry bushes, right? Mm -hmm. Those, that's essentially can razor vine. Those things fucking suck, let me tell you. We had a bunch of those behind my elementary school. Every ball or frisbee that went into those things, some kid was in the freaking nurse's office 10 minutes later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, okay, I guess that's me. So I got uh, Desecrated Ground. So Desecrated Ground is a place where goodly gods fear to tread. Uh, they have been imbued with evil energy, and they become a haven to undead who inhabit the area, uh, giving 
all undead advantage on all saving throws well inside the limits. There is no real size limitations to it, um, but you're generally going to find this around cemeteries and catacombs. The area can be revealed with detect good and evil spell, which will tell you exactly what it is. And the area can be cleansed either with a vial of holy water, which uh, re-sanctifies a 10-foot square area, or the hallow spell, which will clear, uh, I don't remember what the limit is on the spell, but will clear the area of the spell. I think it's a 100-foot square. And that's pretty much it. We've definitely dealt with desecrated ground in our campaign at some point, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I remember at the beginning, there was times where we either created the desecrated ground or we walked on it. Yeah, and every time that that happens, there's undead shit around or yeah. or fiends. It's one or the other, right? Yeah, or like an old religious space that just was no longer religious or abandoned or whatever just becomes desecrated ground, right? Yeah. Well, if or it's somewhere abandoned, that has a... Yeah, it just loses its consecration. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually become desecrated. Um, that's when it's purposefully like fouled by something. I would yeah. assume that if like, for example, a lake full of demon ichor forms and then it like seeps into the ground, it will be desecrated ground after that, even if the ichor is gone. Right. Yeah. So agreed. Th- that kind of or shit. any sort of sacrifice ritual, I imagine, would do that. Mm-hmm. Or like like Terry's bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, some hazards are just too scary to think about. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> Uh, so you guys can find all these hazards as well as rules for frigid water, slippery ice, and thin ice in the DMG, and uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Icewind Dale. Uh, those have rules for avalanches, and, as we talked about in episode 207. And in that episode, we also covered hazards of falling into water and falling onto a creature. Uh, next, we're going to move into environmental hazards. Uh, so that is me, actually, because uh, the only one we have is high altitude. So this one's pretty simple. Um, and I don't think a lot of players are going to run into this. This seems like pretty niche kind of thing. So it's basically whenever you get into areas above 10,000 feet or more above sea level, uh, it's considered high altitude, which means the air is thinner than it is at ground level. And as such, it essentially counts as difficult terrain, but on the larger scale. So meaning uh, a, a creature can only travel about half the distance in a day that they could under regular circumstances. Uh, creatures can become acclimated to the environment by spending 30 consecutive days there, but a creature cannot become acclimated to anything above 20,000 feet because the air is just too thin at that point. Uh, we've also got weather. So Megan, would you like to? Well, I was going to say the only time I really use high altitude is I really want to play a Giants campaign where I would have a cloud Giants where like you go there and it's this wonderful place, but you are not climatized to it, right? Like okay, that, yeah. was the, well, that was the first thing I thought of was going to a, a cloud giant castle and then you are not climatized to it. Yeah, I think Goliaths too live in that kind of environment because they have that. I think that's one of their racial bonuses where they're automatically okay with it. Yeah, congratulations for you. Yeah. But yeah, I'll talk about weather. Um, so first one is extreme heat, which is convenient because I am sweaty as fuck standing in this fucking, if you think it snows here in Canada all the time, you can die in a respectful fire because it's fucking hot right now. <laughs> Anyways. So Canadian. So... Die, but <laughs> die in a respectable fire. <laughs> Respectfully die in a fire. Um, so... Extreme heat is basically when the temperature exceeds 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 37.7 degrees Celsius for everybody else on the planet, uh, which basically just means uh, you're above fever temperature for a human. Uh, But also you have no access to water. So you have to succeed. So 
it really only triggers when those things are in place that you, it was over this temperature and you do not have access to water. Um, in that case, you do have to succeed on a con save throw or take a level of exhaustion uh, for every hour on the hour. The DC is five for the first hour and then increases by one every hour after that. So it's another thing to kind of track as a DM should you want to navigate in this kind of a situation. Here's the fun part to remember as a DM though. If you are wearing medium to heavy armor, you will have disadvantage on your saving throw. So creatures and things that are, and then on top of that, creatures and things that are immune to fire damage or have natural resistances, of course, auto save that throw. So congrats to being climatized to hell. But yes, that is extreme heat in D&D 5th edition. Which again, if it just feels like another thing to track if I was to be doing it. But like, again, it would be a fun hazard to throw in there every once in a while for a short period of time, just to give that sense of danger. I yeah. honestly was toying with this idea when we were doing all of the desert stuff over the last year or so. And I went, fuck, I'm going to kill a player with this. Like for months and months and months on end, I'm going to kill a player with this. Like this is fine <laughs> going into the Fire Giant's Forge to mess with this for a session but as a as a full set of rules that's fucking wild that yeah and like, like when yeah. we did that when i was explaining that we did the running away from lava like we did have to deal with this but again it was a for a short period of time it yeah. was for like two or three days of travel and like we had water so it was just kind of like we rationed it and like we planned it out and that's that was our resource fit but to your point, if you're playing in a desert campaign that's months and months long and you're traveling in the desert, this would be a shitty thing to track and you will kill somebody with this. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah that, you that. need to definitely have like a ranger, someone who can find a water source in between, right? Yeah. And that would be the goal of your, like, that might be the goal of your group is to find a water source in this world so that you can survive, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, even though we didn't use this mechanic in our campaign, we did end up finding an oasis, but like, so the danger of being in heat was a problem, but not to the point where we were going to die. We were given different hazards along the way, but yeah. So I'm just looking at like 10 miles was the high altitude. Was that right? Uh, no, 10,000 10, feet. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. 10,000 10, feet was okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's there, five miles, something. Something like that. There is a yeah. city in Bolivia that is at 12,000 feet above sea level. And that just feels like, why would you do that? And it's like a full yeah. city. But no, you, you start talking about it and I went, how high? No, look, there are peaks in Canada. I know high altitude. And I've been, it's not that bad. And like, no, Banff is the highest uh, city yeah. in Canada. Like we've all been to Banff, right? Like at some point, if you live in BC. And, mm -hmm. uh, and even that's like 4,500 uh, feet above sea level so like double that so yeah that's pretty fucking high up there when is that going to yeah. come up in a campaign not really unless you have Spell like jammer. an everest yeah Spell or an jammer. everest kind of thing yeah or, or right because yeah. the everest people climbers have to carry uh oxygen tank yeah and then but i mean like there are lots of people in the world that die from extreme heat like look look at me yeah. i am a big guy and i am ginger i die from extreme heat when it's like a bright sunny normal day i my skin turns to bacon and i just become a grease spot on the on the pavement i yeah. do not oh. like heat would you guys rather well, be too hot or too cold too cold full stop yeah because you can always add layers yeah i can warm up i can rub my chest with my hands and get feeling back i cannot cool down nope yeah i hate yeah. it yeah i'd rather it's, be too cold yeah well okay so when we had the heat wave here right when it got up to above 40 degrees I think they said it killed about 500 people. We are not climatized for it. No. To be clear to the world, we are not climatized for this kind of weather. <laughs> no, not not even a little bit. Um, 
I think that if that when it hit about 40 degrees, you could actually see my skeleton through my body. Like it was too yeah. much for me. Um, my next one, uh, I've got the opposite of extreme heat, and that's heavy precipitation. So this is what you want after you've been dealing with Megan's nonsense. Um, this is a torrential downpour of uh, heavy rain or heavy snowfall. That's just less than a blizzard. Everything in an area that is affected by heavy particip- uh, participation, precipitation is... Um, considered lightly obscured, which means you have disadvantage on vision-based perception checks. This right here is what finally pushed me towards starting to track a calendar and watch weather patterns in my homebrew world, because I want an overnight watch to have environmental challenges outside of it simply being dark out. Yes, you have dark vision. No, you cannot see easily, because it is just pissing rain too hard, or the snow is too thick, right? Uh, If it's a heavy rain... Open flames go out, and uh, perception checks based on hearing get disadvantage as well. That's not the case if it's uh, heavy snowfall. So that's it. This is probably the shortest blurb today, but like heavy precipitation is moist. In- yeah, it's interesting. It's <laughs> it's it's moist, but it's not going to. Uh, I don't think this is going to make or break a campaign. No, no, but it does add an interesting extra level right like it's not going to kill anybody obviously it doesn't really damage it but it has i don't know it adds a tone to it as well right i'm going to yeah, use ambience. this yeah i'm yeah, going to use this in i want to get that rainforest feel that jungle yeah. feel. uh so i've got strong wind uh so in strong wind creatures have disadvantage on ranged attacks i'm sorry and, kyle. ranged weapon attack sorry kyle i'm, I'm sorry we're i'm going to get that uh sound bite so uh i have strong wind is going to be your sound bite. <laughs> Unfortunately. Fine. <laughs> I'm injured. You can't pick on me. Oh, muffin. <laughs> that eye roll okay. that Megan just gave you was... Yeah, oh man, yeah. The whole internet <laughs> world felt that eye roll. Pull <laughs> <laughs> <Hold> something? <laughs> Anyways, in Strong Wind, creatures have disadvantage on ranged weapon attacks and perception checks that rely on hearing. Uh, it will also get rid of fog, open flames, and make flying extremely difficult forcing flying creatures to either land or fall at the end of their turns if they're still in the air uh personally i would probably substitute that last part uh by making them roll a con save to stay in the air and but have the dc depend on how strong the winds are because it seems like i don't know kind of arbitrary to move up they can still fly but they have to land uh so depending on where the strong wind is occurring it could also have other effects such as creating a sand or snowstorm if happening on a mountain or in a desert, uh, which will also give site-based perception checks disadvantage as well. Uh, These, as well as rules for extreme cold, uh, can be found in the DMG and blizzards in Icewind Dale. I gotta Uh, ask, sorry, do you guys combine these? Like, can you imagine an extreme heat with a strong wind just blasted in the face, like, from, like, hot fucking volcanic air people or like, wonder people wonder why i hate the wind and it is because you can combo it with anything and it would become it's immensely more difficult to deal with and handle i fucking hate the wind i hate yeah, it when and, it's windy and it's There's gonna nothing... be nicer with extreme cold even with heavy precipitation right yeah like yeah. that is that is hurricane level shit you're dealing with then right? stupid yeah. dude honestly there's nothing worse than when it's raining and the wind is blowing in your face while you're walking in that direction makes your umbrella absolutely useless that yeah. happened to me on my way into a job interview god 12 years ago i guess and yeah. like 
the front half of me was drenched and the back half of me was dry and it was well not completely dry but like not nearly as bad and i just remember being so uncomfortable and awkward through the entire thing yeah Um, because it's all you can feel too is just like the wet dampness yeah just your your clothes and like like when you go to a job interview, you're not wearing nice breezy whatever clothes. I'm like got on like a button up shirt and my tie and yeah, like I and it's just clinging to the front of you. Like this is Ugh. terrible. Yeah, not a fan. No. no, not at all. All right, uh, so we're gonna move into the final one, Eldrick Storm. So mm-hmm. Megan, take us away. Uh, I can start with Flame Storm, which I think is is going on with my theme of heat related things i was gonna say is this one about thunder damage or, or cold what's is it <laughs> it might be <laughs> flames on the side of your face uh-huh. uh, <laughs> so this is pretty much what it sounds like so the way you would describe it, it when it happens within the world is that like black city thunder clouds start spitting out tiny fireballs of rain like rain that is little tiny fireballs just lighting up around the place uh these storms that's a fly- great visual by the way like, yeah i think i I've love seen, that raining fireballs that. Yeah. yeah i think i've seen that on the cover of a couple of heavy metal albums actually yeah man 100 rain yeah. and fire um these storms last up to 2d4 minutes and cause 2d6 fire damage at the start of each of your turns as you are caught in it uh the flame droplets do ignite anything that is flammable that you are not wearing uh so say goodbye to your wagon of goods oh evil right that's all i could think about was like you're traveling across and all of a sudden this thing starts and the first thing that lights on fire is your fucking wagon or like it's your fucking house it's your it's every plant in the region you need a cave you got to get underground to get away from this yeah Yeah. or i mean yeah the omens or one of those spells yeah like a magnificent mansion or a rope trick or something else like yeah like there are ways around it but you're not just taking shelter under the wagon yeah because it's gonna light on fire so (laughs) is that uh is that everything about it like it's nasty but it's that that's that's it it's just sooty storm clouds that appear and then start spitting fire at you yeah and then it also says you get disadvantage on perception checks and ranged weapon rolls well, well that's see that but yeah yeah that's uh that's storm nonsense which yeah is... that's this that's just the, the the issues of being in a storm oh yeah yeah that makes sense i could have mentioned it though but thank you <laughs> <laughs> um mine is called necrotic tempest which again i think is a rad name for a, a metal album so yeah. uh, necrotic tempest are necrotic storms surprise surprise that are teeming with the presence and essence of death, which is vague and spooky sounding. Um, In previous editions, that would mean that they're infused with energy from the negative plane and summoned by great evil. But in fifth edition, they just benefit from the loose and vague approach to theme as opposed to solid rules. Instead of just scary negative plane storm, necrotic tempests are injected with the fun descriptor that that the clouds royal and, I quote, manifest leering skulls and bone white lightning i want to ask when they manifest leering skulls does that mean that the clouds themselves take the shape of a of a skull or are they raining fucking skulls on you so at first i did imagine like the cloud turning into like the skull yeah. much like the mummy would do but then i also wanted to just like start spitting out tiny little skulls like but, yeah <laughs> i freaking love it like it's so dark and weird oh, fuck why not both let's do it it's just manifest leering skulls is such a vague bullshit. All right. Anyways, these last for 1d4 hours. Um, 
Foul well water for 1d4 days and ruin crops and plant life. Hard stop. So whatever's been planted is just dead. That like You can't eat it. Yeah. Um, if a creature that isn't a construct or undead gets exposed to the necrotic tempest, they have to make a DC 13 con save at the end of each minute or take 3d6 necrotic damage. And by the way, if you die in the storm, you come back as a zombie or skeleton 1d10 minutes later. I was going to say, if that did not happen, I would make that happen. Yeah. So that makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. Yeah. So here's my thing. Necrotic Tempest destroys villages and it spawns hordes of undead. How did the zombie apocalypse kick off in your world? Necrotic Tempest, that's how. How did the Necromancer raise an army of skeletons overnight, considering they only have a handful of spell slots to raise undead? Necrotic Tempest ritual. This is the answer for your undead horde. Okay, so you know how you said it manifests like skulls? I'm thinking it rains skulls, and then those turn into like undead skeleton. Like, oh, that leaves bad. like a swath of skulls along the ground behind it, and then slowly they just start like climbing from the ground. Like bones sprout from underneath it, and then they all stand up. This is how you deliver an undead army. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, neat. Uh, okay, so I got the flay wind. Uh, so, do you want some Pepto Bismol for that, or what? No, I got some tums. Thanks, though. Uh, so this is basically what happens when a little piece of a terrifying outer plane makes its way into the material one, uh, be it pandemonium or another one, I think uh, in the book it calls it Cisrock. Uh, it's basically howling deadly gales that are like sandstorms on meth. These last on average 1d4 uh, times 10 hours, and they gather large rocks, sand, and anything else it can find into it. And it just pummels and cuts any creature that might find itself trapped within, uh, unless they can make it to heavy cover or shelter. And it deals 1d4 slashing damage at the start of each turn and is a heavily obscured area within the storm. Uh, the only protection you can really get before it comes is passing a DC 15 Arcana, Nature, or Survival check, which will, will allow creatures to recognize a flay wind about a minute before it starts. This is where you need to hustle in a very specific direction. Let me hustle you faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Start running. <laughs> I really like uh, so you, I love Pandemonium. I think it's just a fucking insane plane in the first yeah. place. So, like, I would play with this. I, I, I absolutely love this. Yeah, it's cute. This should come out of every portal to Pandemonium. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, so you can find this and then also rules for Rim's Howl in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, before we wrap up this episode, we're going to cut to our last ad break, though. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes and comments. Engagement like that help us pop up on search engines and keep the show running. Uh, okay, so what hazard in this episode inspired you guys the most? Oh, man. Let's roll dice. Sure. I want to roll, roll dice. Okay. 12. 14. 13. <gasps> Bitches and hoes. Fuck off. Get out of town. <laughs> That's the second time this episode someone's going to last with a 12. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I really like the Demon Iker. I think that that one speaks to Megan's the most. Um, and the fact <laughs> that if I was to have my own witch's hovel, it would be surrounded by a moat of this, to be honest. Speaks to Megan's everywhere. 
Also, you get to uh, warp some flesh, which is always good. We love yeah. a good warped flesh. Um, but no, that one inspired. That one I enjoyed and inspired the most. But I feel like the one that I would probably use the most as a DM after reading this would be, I like I like the wilderness hazards, like the ones that were going to come up naturally, but just cause like, a little bit of pain, but aren't going to kill you. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's me. Uh, so I don't know. I like a bunch of them for different reasons. I really like the Eldritch Storms just because they add a nice kind of ambiance to things. Also, the Necrotic Tempest is just fucking badass. But like that's, I mean, that's how I start my campaign is I throw that at my level one party to yeah, go yeah. hide in, in a cave and watch the shit kick off. And now we know what we're doing for the next few sessions, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I mean, honestly, what inspired me the most, probably the rot grubs, right? Like there will come a day when I have someone or a bunch of someone fall into a pit of rotting corpses and then just be like set upon by a swarm of rot grubs. And then, you know, like I would modify it a little bit that especially if I was doing it with a higher level party, right? That um, every time they make a save and they don't get out of the pit, the DC jumps because there's just more of them crawling over the bodies. So it's like, oh, a 10. Yeah, you passed it this time. Uh, you got a 12? Nope, sorry. The DC's 15 this time. And then the next one is 20. Gross. See, I'm going to I'm gonna mix and match here on this one. So your party comes across some desecrated ground, and there's a foul, strong wind blowing from the northeast. And as they start mm-hmm. moving in that direction, they start to find little puddles of, of demon ichor. I'm not quite sure what it is until they get to the portal with the flay wind pouring out of it. And that's what that strong when that they felt before was right and then they gotta oh. close the portal right like <laughs> that's that's a, just a bunch of exploratory shit all piled up together that's oh my god oh that's so good yeah the necrotic tempest comes along raining skulls and demon ichor and then it's all desecrated ground as all these skeletons rise up and the army falls behind it yeah like i'm i'm gonna throw a bunch of this shit together and like yeah. heavy precipitation okay. as well so you're watching like the tempest has blown through its its undead shit, but it's still just piss and rain as the skeletons start to rise up out of the ground. All of those skulls start to stand up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Neat. I like that a lot. Uh so which hazard would fuck up the last character that you played? So weirdly enough, uh Quicksand would one hundred percent ruin my character's life because she would run she runs far away ahead all the time on her own she's the i'm gonna do my own shit fuck you guys i'm a strong independent woman fell into quicksand she's also <laughs> less than five feet tall uh and has, a, and, and has a negative one to strength so <laughs> she would she would run off into the distance and fall into a puddle of quicksand and this would 100 percent kill my character Hold which on is a very I, sad to say i'm taking notes <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like nodding. He's like, "Yes, yeah, is how we kill Kaya." <laughs> uh, for me, probably also the rock rubs because my character because it's just too stupid. <laughs> and, like Yak is just gonna go touch some stuff and not think about what might be. He probably would actually try to eat one of the rock rubs. That's fair. So, I mean, I'm never a player. It never comes up, right? But I will say special shout out to uh, Desecrated Ground because one of the last times I killed a player character was Terry's character who died on Desecrated Ground. Um, And he, he was risen shortly thereafter. So, I mean, I have a special place in my heart for Desecrated Ground, I think. We do enough undead shit in my campaigns. We're going to run into that nonsense. It can happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's all for our discussion on hazards in fifth edition. Make sure that you just subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be finishing off our conversation on gem dragons by looking at some creatures you might not be aware of. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com, a store with some awesome It's a Mimic merch and now a Patreon. Uh, this episode and others can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's the Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits, and don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations. I think for me, uh, one time I was driving uh, between here and Manning Park with Dave and our friend Ian, and it was like a pretty heavy snowstorm, uh, and our friend Ian didn't have the greatest car, uh, and at one point we were coming around a bend, it was like a pretty steep hill, and he lost control, and he went nose first into a snowbank, and it the road had like just been plowed, but it was so narrow that like another car wouldn't be able to fit between one of the snowbanks and the back of his car if it came around. And we were like right at the apex of a blind corner. So it was just, it wasn't so much the weather that was scary. It was anything that might happen because of the weather behind it. Kyle, we try not to talk about snow stories on the podcast because all of the other listeners just like that solidifies how Canadian we are. The fact that <laughs> that one third of us has a snow story and actually one third of mine was a blizzard. Fuck, we're not doing well. Yeah, I did get caught on like the Merritt Bypass when there was like a fucking whiteout and I was yeah. driving a car that didn't have snow tires, just like basic all weathers. I got back, uh, back then it was legal and now it is illegal to do that. <laughs> I got stuck coming down the Coquihalla in the odd blizzard uh, that happened in July. And I was with my buddy and we were just like, it just happened to blizzard for six hours. And we were in a freaking Cavalier. I mean, Kyle, we were in the Cavalier. Um, so, you know, that thing was, was a tank. But like, uh, we ended up just tucking in behind a, a long haul trucker. And just praying that as long as we could see his taillights, we were going to live. Yeah. Right? So that's the trick. Those of you who don't live in Canada, find a truck and hang out behind it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do not be in front of it. Yeah. Or don't it. try and go around it. Just like no. stick, keep your cool, yeah. find a truck and hunker down behind and just coast along. That's all you got to do. Everybody okay, so... missed the fact that we just had a little dance break silently. None of us said a word. <laughs> we all just danced on camera as if there was music playing. All right, now <laughs> now we can continue. I feel like at some point in time, some of these videos have to be released. At least like one or two of like the weird <laughs> shit that we do. <laughs> I, I have I burned a couple of them. There, there was one where, and I'm not going to out who they are. There was one where one person put themselves on mute and then sat there and picked their nose. This was very, oh. very early in the in the Zoom call era of It's a Mimic, but it was um, <laughs> it was hilarious to go back and watch afterwards. And I'm like, holy shit! Okay, you know what? I'm just gonna edit the audio, not the video on these anymore. Yeah. Was we it me? Come... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you think that it might be the fact that you mute the mic and then burp loudly, and we can tell when you do it based <laughs> on the fact that you crane your head back. 
open your mouth and throat and just like clearly project something. We can <laughs> yeah. tell there's like a shoulder movement with it. Like you are giving her. You got to put your hips into it. <laughs> it's almost like Godzilla breathing fire. Yeah. <laughs> the internet loves me. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be a gif for sure. And then just add, edit in the fire. That is opening myself up for a lot of terrible internet things. So I'm just not, we are not going to do that. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll steer clear. <laughs> this is just for us. <laughs> That was another dance break. Yeah. I love that just happens naturally. <laughs> we look like fucking Muppets, you know, doing it too, because we're all like, like from armpits up, just wiggling. It's the Wii characters. <laughs> Strike. Uh, so I've got strong wind.